Hey friends, welcome to the Rhythms for Life podcast, where each week we talk about four rhythms that help you reduce stress and anxiety and take charge of your emotional health. Rest, restore, connect, create. These ideas come from Rebecca's best-selling book, Rhythms of Renewal, trading stress and anxiety for a life of peace and purpose. So grab your copy, invite your friends, and let's live in rhythm. Welcome back. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Gabe. And welcome to the Emotional Health Series brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. And we've loved having them as a partner throughout this series. And you're hearing all about it, but they have so many great discounts. If you're at this point starting to think about those Christmas gifts, I know we're giving away some Bibles for Christmas, and it's a great gift for people that you love that maybe want a little special Bible, something with notes in it, maybe something mm-hmm. that's got beautiful gold ornamentation. There's so many options But we'd love for you to enjoy that, and you'll learn more about that in this episode, how you can do it. But today, we're talking again with Chip Dodd, and this Emotional Health Series continues to bring people out of the woodwork, telling us how much this is helping them in their relationships, which makes you and I so happy. Yes, we are so thrilled. And we've had this idea for a couple years, and I'm so glad that we're doing it. It's actually more fun than I even thought it would be. Because it's conversations that we always have at home anyways. You guys are having them. We're having them. Everyone's having this conversation about like, I don't like how I reacted in anger or I feel fearful. I I don't like feeling anxious. You know, like this is everyday language. So for us to just come around it with a trusted expert like Chip um, to give us guidance that's biblical, biblically rooted. And today it's shame. And what I appreciate about Chip is that he's talking about there's there's – shame. And then there's a healthy version of shame, which I wouldn't have considered in the past. And I'm really glad that he talks about that because what the redeemed version of shame or the healthy expression of that is conviction. It really truly is the Holy Spirit convicting us of something that we may have done against someone. And I think that's very important because otherwise we walk away feeling kind of like, it's not on me. And yet we know in our heart that there's something that we did that we need to make right. This idea of shame is so deep. And it's, it's something, Rebecca, you read a book by Kurt Thompson. Uh, the Soul of Shame. Talked about that a lot. We'll be with him next week as part of our emotional health retreat with Chip and John and Lisa Bevere. It's going to be a great learning time. But Kurt really was the first person I had read or heard from that really understood in a way that could help us understand shame and understand that this was like the root. Yes. This was the thing the enemy used from the first day. Yes. Genesis <laughs> to start three. To bury yep. us yes. as human beings. And when you started understanding that and then helping me understand it, it unlocked a new way for us to engage one another. Yeah. Honestly, Gabe, I would say if I could mark a book in this decade that shifted trajectory for me, it was Kurt's book, The Soul of Shame, because I never understood that what I was experiencing internally, the narratives I was telling myself, my my temptation to retreat and hide and whenever there was conflict with you or the kids was really truly me letting have shame take control, have power over me, so much so that I never felt worthy of how to even engage or reconcile. And so it just made that gap wider and wider. And uh, Kurt, in his book, just gave language for what shame feels like even when it consumes you internally, physiologically, but then also how it kind of bullies you into thinking like, I'm irreparable. And this is just my dysfunctional way of processing conflict. And and it wasn't until you and I had very candid conversation a couple years ago that God used that honesty and vulnerability to shift the power from 
back to Christ, right? That he has redeemed us, that he, it says he um, endured the cross despising shame for the joy set before him. Like he knew that he was going to be setting us free from the power of shame. Well, one of the most annoying things practically for us is we'd be having like a fight and I would look away to the left of your eyes or when something. I was reading. And, and you'd try to call me out and be like, you're not looking at my eyes. You're like, feeling shame. And I'm like, like what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, and we we started to unpack. Why, why are you not looking me in the eyes anymore? What Are you lying? Are you trying yeah. to deceive me? And, you know, understanding the passage in Genesis where God looks down and Adam and Eve are feeling shame and he comes to Adam. Adam does this. He diverts attention. He yes. says, it was her. It was yeah. Eve that did it. The woman you yeah. gave me. So he's trying to cast... He's trying to get rid of this feeling he has of deep shame by pushing it off onto God right. or onto his mate, um, right. because anything to avoid this feeling of shame. And we as humans, the more I've understood it, I realize how much that's what I do. I try to avoid this deep, intense burden of this emotion of shame, and I want to cast blame on somebody else. And that's one of the first behaviors that comes into play when we're feeling shame. Yeah. Yeah, we divert the eyes. And really, it's our conscious, it's our body's response to hiding. It's like, I can't leave the room right now, but I can at least stop feeling seen by you. Yeah. Even though you're still looking at yeah. me, I don't have to look at you, look at me. <laughs> or distract you, like yeah. point out something else, anything to get your eyes off of me Yeah, um, and the attention off of me. Yeah. And so in our fights, you start to recognize, wow, that's what's happening. So we're going to talk about all that with Dr. Chip Dodd here in just a few moments, who's a counselor, a coach, amazing uh, author of the book, The Voice of the Heart, which we base this series off of. Um, but I want to encourage you, invite others around you in relationship with you to listen to this series. Start at the beginning, because these build on each other. We start with that introduction episode, and then we move right into hurt, the first emotion that really runs through all of these emotions, followed by a conversation with someone who helps us practically think about how today shame plays out. And so we have with us today, Nona Jones. She's an author. She's written this incredible book on killing comparison that's all about how shame can be part of how we compare ourselves and we feel shame. And so we want to understand how FOMO plays into that, the way shame's playing out in today's culture. Yeah. And just the connection with our worth, right? Like ultimately shame gets down to the baseline of, am I worthy of love, right? Am I enough? And when we don't feel that and we feel shame, we hide and we run and we retreat. So I think this is going to be very helpful and encouraging. Hey friends, we are so excited that this season of emotional health is sponsored by the Christian Standard Bible. I love this translation. I study from it. I read from it. I take notes and then I travel with it and even teach with it. It's the pocket size that I take on the road and a bigger one that I put in my suitcase. It's approachable, legible, understandable, and I just love this translation. It blends accuracy and readability, so you don't have to choose between literal or paraphrase. And there's so many different varieties, right? You've different editions from study Bible to note-taking Bibles, premium Bibles, and kids' Bibles, you will definitely be able to find one that fits your needs and works best for you and your family. So save 40% on a Bible at lifeway.com using the code R4L. That's the letter R, the number four, the letter L. So use that code. Go grab one for yourself, maybe for a loved one, maybe a gift for Christmas. Lifeway.com. Use the code R4L. Okay, shame tells me I am limited. I am mistake ridden. I have some answers, but I don't have all the answers. I need you to help me. I can't do this alone. We need each other. That feels healthy. Yes, it is. And most 
of the time we think of shame as being very unhealthy. Exactly. In fact, some of the the, the cultural leaders today uh, don't have any room for the acknowledgement of healthy shame. All shame is bad shame, right? Toxic. When actually, healthy shame is a birthright, hmm. a birthright of neediness, and we're all created to be able to ask for help because that's how we learn. But but our culture, because of toxic shame, says somehow I should know this already. Or I shouldn't have to ask. I should be capable. I should be ready already. When actually, somehow I should just be able to become a YouTube specialist and a thought leader at 21. It's like, <laughs> you're not going to do that. Okay? Right, right. Though you may influence the culture with antics, mm-hmm. you're not influencing the, the cultivation of hearts with wisdom. Okay. You know? Yeah. So healthy shame is like everybody has gifts. Mm. Like, like you have a, a, a wood and you have fire and I have water and somebody has a pot, somebody mm-hmm. has peas, carrots, mm-hmm. toma- you know, tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Before you know it, bowls and spoons, we have a stew. We have a mm-hmm. communion. Conversing and communion, that, that verses together, mm-hmm. we grow. Yeah. And yeah. communion means that we are in union with each other. It's like, wow. Right. So healthy shame allows that to happen. Well, when you think of shame being unhealthy, I think that's probably where mm-hmm. I would have gone with it mm-hmm. and have gone with it in the past is that when it's introduced in Scripture, in Genesis 3, he says, he hid, right? Yep. So that shame— I was I, ashamed. I, I so made I something, so I hid. Mm-hmm. And then that created separation in relationship, mm-hmm. like like— Intimacy was broken, yep. and so therefore, when we hide, when we divert our eyes, when our when I we kind of have a shame episode, yes, it breaks relationship. That is a great expression because it literally is. Ashamed means no healthy shame. Mm. Ah, the Greek ah, mm. shame. It's like I'm no longer connected to me. See, the truth is the truth. I mean, this is what the scientists have been telling me. This is what the doctors I've treated have told me. I mean, this is this is astounding. We're 99.9% identical, the DNA of the human being. We're 99.9% identical in terms of emotionally and spiritually. Wow. We're only 0.01% unique and separated from each other. Hmm. But look how far we've taken uniqueness and look how far we've run from sameness. So we have a tremendous amount of toxic shame of admitting what's going on inside of us. Hmm. We try to find our fulfillment always externally, mm. to try to find internal security by yeah. external means yeah. all the time instead of through admission. Yeah. So healthy shame allows us to look into each other's eyes and say, do you experience this? Uh-huh. Me too. I remember my I brother. I thought I was the only one. <laughs> I know. My brother's going into seventh grade, his giant school. He got off the bus and he said to this other kid, he goes, are you scared? He goes, yeah, I'm scared, John. My brother said, I'm about to pee in my pants. The guy said, me too. And he said, at that point, once they got into school, they never spoke to each other again. Hmm. Because they went from sixth graders to seventh graders, and seventh graders don't say that. So they're ashamed. Their inability to be vulnerable with each other, to identify with each other, tore them apart. Wow. Toxic shame is contempt towards myself for being human, for being a feeling, needing, desiring, longing, hoping creature who imagines the greatness of what could be. Wow. Talk about contempt, because I know yep. that kills a lot of marriages. Yes. The, this uh, 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 this uh, a book uh, years ago was done called Quiet Desperation, like Hen- Henry David Thoreau's statement that most people live in quiet desperation, that corporate executives would often come up with these great ideas through dreams or intuition or just wake up in the morning like a child going, you know, I wonder if this could happen. 
And then they go, well, I can't tell the people how I got this. So they go to their technician and say, make this true. Make this come up. Give me some facts and figures. Hmm. To but defend. To defend against so they could defend themselves because no one's going to believe the heart, the dreams, the imagination, the wonder. Mm. So we're raised to become ashamed to reject our vulnerability, our wonder, to, to, to reject our goodness, to reject trust. Just think, when somebody gives us a gift today, hey, I just wanted you to have this. Like, okay, what for? Yeah, what what's are, attached? What, what's the tag? What are you going to, because if I just take a gift, I'm going to look like a fool when I believe that it was hmm. a, or truly yeah. something wow. given. Well, so toxic this, shame protects us. Hmm. Yeah. It reminds me, God gave me a dream back a few months ago about an idea for our work that we're doing. And I felt all those feelings. I don't know if I can tell my leadership team yes. that this came from a dream. Yes. Like I need to make this make logical sense. <laughs> right. I need to Defend figure it. out how this could be real. And instead I decided to tell them the dream. Yeah. And it was met with connection. Yeah. Right. And you see people's hearts leap like, yeah. Yeah, God does work in that way. And Let's I'm going to tell you something, it. Gabe. That tells me something, uh, if, if I may, with your audience, tells me something about you. And what it tells me is that you're leading well and that you have put out a call to board members who believe in something bigger than themselves and they're following or attending with you, you believing something bigger than yourself. Yeah. And see, you're not the answer. You're a servant of a dream. Mm. And you're yeah. following an authority bigger than yourself. And they're following you. Mm. So that it's amazing that that you've got a bunch of people who are in healthy shame yeah. related to mm. you. Mm. Healthy shame enough to confront you, to ask hard questions, you being willing to hear hard questions, you asking hard questions, and y'all uh, really are doing relationship together. And out of the relationship has come this capacity to be loyal towards this vision or yeah. this right. mission. Yeah. Mm. Right. So and that's a compliment to you. Thank you. <laughs> but, uh, but, <laughs> but I didn't feel that way when I first oh, no, was, you know, the risk goes Because that. you're right. Toxic shame started working Corporate on Corporate culture first. has Cor also crept into the church. And you, you can't even talk about dreams and visions go, there. You, you want to go there right now? <laughs> <laughs> we don't have time. But my point is, is that when we shame again and become ashamed of of, of a God-breathed like yeah. inspiration mm -hmm. of of some dream that doesn't always make logical sense, but that's this whisper, that still yeah. small voice, the mystery that you talked about yes. earlier, that that if we lean into those things and we're honest with them, it becomes clear that his glory is given to yes. him, not us, right? Toxic shame makes us addicted to people's approval mm. rather than open to the experience of fully of our lives lived fully with God and others. Right. Okay. And toxic shame, it it is a... A predominantly, it's a contempt towards myself for having feelings. Hmm. Hmm. It's a hatred of how God made me. Yeah. That's what yeah. toxic shame is. Yeah. And so it leads to the goodness of, the redemptive of that is humility. Yes. So We're all made out of dirt, and it turns out it's stardust, and it's the same dirt. We really are. I mean, it's it's proven throughout, all across all cultures. And I could I could even show you an experience that proves, regardless of the culture you're from, how we're all made the same. And then secondly, I can show you that throughout history, it's the expression mm -hmm. of these feelings and running from them mm -hmm. in every culture mm -hmm. we've come from historically. 
So, so the beauty of that shame is that when we realize our limitations are finite, that we begin with us, we go back to, there's a gratitude. Yeah. There's a health there. Yep. We're not ashamed that, that mm-hmm. we go back to dust. No. We accept that. And that is no. what God has. Oh, I was silent about what I'd found out and what I'd been taught for quite a long time. But I've, I've, I've tapped this little drum for 35 years. Like we're feeling creatures who seek life and life to the full who happen to be able to think. And I've just kept gaining awareness of it. Wow. But I've seen it save lives and mm-hmm. I can't shut up about it. Yeah. Because if I do, there'll yeah. be consequences. Well, you are living life to the full. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank thank you. you for not shutting up about it. No, I, I, God usually I, yeah. gives us a story we can't talk about. Toxic shame is a great <laughs> silencer though, isn't it? Yes, it is. Now let's listen into our conversation with Nona Jones, the author of Killing Comparison. Welcome to the podcast, Nona. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're so thrilled to get this conversation going because I'm so um, interested in the topic of comparison and the research that you've done, the writing that you've done. And we are in a series of emotional health and shame is our uh, discussion for today. And so we're just wanting to really unpack how shame plays out <laughs> in comparison, right? Like just this this idea of, am I enough? Am I not enough? And how do I line up against someone else? So maybe we start with what got you interested in this topic, uh, your experience, your background, your work, even vocationally now where you get a front row seat to this. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, three years ago, if you would have asked me, um, was I insecure or did I have any struggles struggles with, you know, comparison, I would have said no. I would have been like, I'm the most secure person on earth. I mean, look at all I have, look at all I've done. And uh, but then back in 2020, like many speakers, I had a full calendar of engagements. I was excited to travel around the country. I was going to be speaking around the world. And then the pandemic caused all of the events to get canceled. And one morning I was about to log on to a video conference, but I opened my Instagram app um, just to respond to comments uh, from people before the meeting. And I happened to catch a glimpse of my news feed and a friend of mine, she made a post about this huge virtual women's conference that she was going to be speaking at and how excited she was. And I saw her post and I was like, oh, that's really cool. And I scrolled down a little bit more and there was another friend who posted the same conference and how excited she was to speak at it. And I scrolled down a little more and there was another friend and then another and another and another. And as I saw this, I realized, wow, I know all of the speakers and I know the host of this conference. Why wasn't I invited? Like, why Why was I not good enough? Um, why her, not me? I started to click on their profiles to figure out how many followers did they have. And then I clicked on their website to be like, okay, well, where else are they speaking in comparison to me? And I started to do all of this comparison calculus. And in the midst of that, the questions, why do I not measure up? Why was I not good enough? Why her, not me? Another question landed in my heart, which was, why does it matter? Like, why does this matter right now? Why am I descending into this puddle of feeling inadequate because I wasn't invited to speak at an event that I never even had a desire to speak at? Like that, that's, right. the thing, right. that's the thing that got me. And so really, that's what got me on the path is just trying to figure out why is it that seeing someone else's success can lead us to feel like a failure? Um, what's, what's inherent in that? So, 
yeah, that's what got me on the path was my own experience. Yeah. And I'm just curious. I mean, maybe we're jumping to the punchline, but were you able to answer that question pretty quickly or did that take you some time to unpack the real motivations behind that? Totally took time. Yeah, it took time. I had to uh, really sit with that question. Why does it matter? Because the first answer to the question was very superficial. It was like, well, it matters because there's this huge event happening and I'm not speaking at it. But then I had to ask again, well, but why does that matter? And, you know, I began to kind of dig deeper and I realized when I got to the bottom of that question, I had to ask myself that question like seven times to really get to the bottom of it. And what I realized is the reason why it mattered ultimately is because I did not believe that I mattered. Like I did not believe that I had intrinsic value. And, you know, I know the scriptures, you're fearfully and wonderfully made and all of that as someone who leads a local church with my husband, but um, it wasn't what I knew in my head that was the problem. It was what I believed in my heart. And the beliefs that I had in my heart were derivatives of words that were spoken over me as a child by my mother, by teachers, by classmates. And so it took some time for me to really get to the core of what were the words that were spoken over me that fractured my identity so much so that I needed the approval of people. I needed to be included. I needed to be seen as successful in order to feel like I mattered. And that is really what created the insecurity because people's approval is never permanent. Like it's, it, it basically is like a, like a shifting current that goes out and comes in. And so you end up feeling like you're just unstable and that instability is insecurity. Mm-hmm. Well, Nona, That's thanks good. for sharing just that personal story. I think for everybody listening and if Chip were talking with us right now, I mean, I think he would say the, the ability to go back in our stories and understand where this root comes from of shame that we feel that can lead to this insecurity. It can lead to us even having contempt for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we have self-contempt. And and then the the flip side of that is contempt for other people. I mean, this is the unhealthy way shame can go. And, and you talk a lot about the comparison from this perspective of being insecure. There's also a way we can compare ourselves sometimes to others where we think we're better than others, right? Mm-hmm. And that leads to like contempt for others because we are comparing what we've achieved compared to somebody mm-hmm. else. And we're like, you don't know what you're talking about. I've been there. I know how to do this mm-hmm. better. So this contempt starts to play out in all kinds of ways, but I think your honesty about how contempt and how this feeling of of almost fear of missing out, the FOMO factor mm-hmm. with the speaking engagement, starts to lead us each down a path to question, why am I doing this? And the fact that you would ask that question multiple times, why do I do that? And then why do I think that? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the hard work. So, so talk us through that. Somebody who's hearing this for the first time, they're like, man, I have never even thought about a statement that was spoken over my life that might be part of why I feel this, Um, how would you lead somebody to go back in their life a little bit and try to unpack where this comparison trap starts to come from? Well, I think it starts with, uh, with recognition. You know, I think we spend, we spend more time denying insecurity than defeating insecurity. Like we say, no, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. And one of the things I talk about in the book is the importance of recognizing your feelings and recognizing your thoughts, because we can fool other people, but we can't fool ourselves. Like we know when we see somebody else and it seems like they're winning. And then there's this, this, 
feeling inside of us that's like, oh, why can't I do that? Like we know that's on the inside of us. So I think it starts with recognizing it. Um, and then I think it really is a question of, okay, where did that come from? And and being willing to really go back and do the work. Like, okay, why is it, to use your example, why is it that I only feel good if I'm putting somebody else down and essentially standing on their back? Like, why does that make me feel valued? Like, why do I feel that way? And what you'll often find is that's the way it is because there were words that were spoken over you that made you believe that somebody else was better than you, that somebody else was your competition. So things like, you know, siblings, maybe there's a sibling in the house who was very athletic and you weren't athletic. And so you were constantly in this battle trying to prove your worthiness to your parents. And that translates into adulthood if we don't actually take the moment to acknowledge it. Like, oh, wait a minute. It isn't that this other person uh, is is less successful than me. It's that I literally feel like if I don't beat you, that I don't matter. And that's a fundamentally different experience. And I think it manifests in a lack of joy. Uh, There are people who have tremendous wealth and power and fame who are miserable because what fueled their success was this uh, feeling of emptiness, this feeling of an approval void. And it's like, I got to get the next thing or else I won't have people's approval. And that's just not a way to live. Right. You know, it's so interesting that you talked about growing up and having a sibling that might be more athletic or musical or, you know, honors classes. And what happens is we all have these like subconscious roles that everyone plays on the, you know, the family unit, the family team. And you've got the hero, the villain, the scapegoat, you know, (laughs) you know, and it's not verbalized, but it's in, it's intrinsically felt, especially with multiple kids and different ages and different, you know, um, giftings. And I think what happens is we, we make agreement with those roles in some ways that, you know, even as a, as a child, I would have made agreement like, oh, this sibling, you know, calls me an airhead because I'm the only blonde, right? Or that, um, you know, and it's, out of our own securities that we even kind of identify each other that way. But then we grow up and become parents. And I still come sometimes subconsciously, if I'm not intentional and noticing like you're talking about, I can kind of put different kids in different lanes based on what their challenges or trials are in that moment versus kind of reversing out of that and going, "The, the image of God is in everyone. The birthright gifts that he's entrusted to them are in everyone, and they're all going to look different, and they're all worthy of celebration. And it is a rethinking, I think, even for our generation to kind of take that back once we become parents or we, like, give back, you know, and try to – it's not to condemn what we were given. I think everyone gives what they have, and they give the best that they have. But we do have more conversations and learning around this now, how how, what is spoken over us – really does inherently shift trajectory. And I don't think that was a conversations our parents were having or maybe their parents were having. It was like, you know, that was like a luxury to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. now we're seeing, hey, this this really does matter in the rewiring of the brain and neuroplasticity and healing. It, it really does help us to 
acknowledge and recognize. So thank you for starting with that. Um, I'm curious, um, when you were, uh, when we were talking about, you went on their profiles and you were looking, you know, at their following and their numbers and everyone has done that. Everyone has done that. (laughs) So let's just go ahead and say that right now. Um, No shame attached to that because everyone has done that. And what's so interesting is that that whole structure of social media is inherently also built in such a way that you get to line yourself up in the hierarchy of worth, right, based on your followers and your your engagement and whatever. And and what I don't even know what to do about that. I got so excited when um, Instagram offered like where you could hide the likes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you know, just go back to when we just got to post these crazy weird filters and just be emo in our caption. <laughs> um, and I'm just curious how how do you navigate that with what you do professionally and like sitting in that space all the time? What are some of the ways to combat that um, in a social media world? I, first of all, I love this question. Um, Because I work in social technology, I do have a very uh, unique lens on it, uh, both that I work for it and I also work in ministry and I'm a mom to, you know, young boys. And so I sit at the nexus of all of these different perspectives. And one thing I've recognized is that while social media does expose our insecurity, it actually isn't the source of it. And, and the reason I say that is, you know, two people can look at the exact same post. One person can walk away from it like, that was so inspiring. And another person can walk away from it like, well, why do they get to do that and I don't? <laughs> and so it really does become a question of the posture of our heart. And I would layer on top of that, this is where self-awareness becomes really important. Like if you know that insecurity is something that you struggle with, if you know that, you know, seeing the curated images, I call it curated fiction, by the way. Um, When you see the curated fiction that people share on social media, like the perfect marriage and the perfect vacation and the perfect kids, and that triggers you, learn to guard your eyes in order to guard your heart. Like you don't have to see everything everybody posts. You know, the whole thing about hide hide light count, that's great. I also recommend mute, unfollow, like just mm-hmm. get that out of your uh your 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 consciousness because if you are struggling in this area, it's not going to make you stronger by continuing to trigger yourself. I give the extreme example. Um, I would never tell someone who's struggling with porn addiction to just go to the local porn shop and walk around. Like I just, I, I wouldn't do that. And yet we kind of fall into that trap when it comes to social media. It's like, we know that when we open the app and we see certain people, they're always posting the highlight reel. They're never posting the kind of counterbalance to their life. Um, you know, you have to kind of make a decision. Like, you know what? I need to guard my well-being because social media can be amazing and it can also be triggering. I mean, the reason why I I lost a hundred over a hundred pounds at this point um, about ten years ago. The reason that happened is because I came across a woman on YouTube who was just sharing her story of how she started at the same weight I was at the time and how she lost a hundred pounds. And seeing her story, watching her journey. It inspired me, which is why one of the contentions I make in the book 
is that comparison in and of itself isn't necessarily bad because it can take two forms. On the one hand, healthy comparison can lead to inspiration. Like we see somebody who's where we want to be and it's like, man, let me learn from them and see how I can get to where they are. Toxic comparison, which is where I spend a lot of my time in the book, is when we see somebody where we want to be and we begin to question our worthiness. And that's because there are lies that we have believed, to use your phrasing, lies that we've come into agreement with that have now shaped what we believe about ourselves. And that's when it becomes dangerous. Yeah. So because of the seat you're in where you do work with Meta and Facebook and have had experience in that world, and and you're talking to a lot of parents here who I think as you properly address, there's like the insecurity basically gets magnified sometimes when we're exposed to these different environments. But there's obviously a lot of discussion even now for parents about whether their kids should be having access to these things. Mm -hmm. And I I know a ton of them already do, but there's a lot of parents now that are seeing some of the fruit of that and their kids are preteen and they're going, you know what? I think I'm not going to let them have access to social media because I just don't know that they are at the age. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, their age, their mental. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just wondering from what you're seeing, the studies that you're looking at, the behind the scenes conversations, um, what, what are you seeing and thinking is wisdom for parents that are trying to work through that? Oh, I think that, you know, listen, I am a parent. Um, I think that just like every other area of our children's lives, we need to be involved. We need to know uh, that, number one, giving your children access to the world is probably not the best because um, they they don't know how to navigate the world. And there are people in the world who don't always have the best of intentions. We hear about cyberbullying all of the time. I mean, and these sometimes aren't even kids. Like there are grown people who adopt, um, you know, fictitious profiles and they spend their life trolling people and trying to make people doubt themselves. And so as a parent, um, you know, I'm very, very careful about what I allow my children to have access to. And I also monitor who they're connected to. You know, who exactly are you following? Let's have a conversation about their content. Let me see their content because I want to make sure uh, that my children are leaving those experiences built up and edified and not feeling torn down. So yeah, lean in. Um, I, I strongly recommend, you know, check to see what your children's internet browsing history is. Check to see, you know, who they're following on these social platforms because ultimately as parents, we're responsible for how our children form uh, their identity. Yeah, that's really good. I think you're absolutely right by being engaged and being involved. And it comes back to what you said at the beginning, pay attention, take notice. And we can just get swept under, you know, this current if we're not aware and awake, you know? And and I wonder um, what you would recommend because you had to go through this process yourself and you said it did take time to really notice. But what are ways that practical ways that parents can notice a themselves, <laughs> their own comparison, their own insecurities? <laughs> what are ways that they can recognize that in their children? Uh, because often when we when we model that, our children pick that up. And so part of it begins with us and understanding where we're rooted. Because I know for sure, years ago there was a fine line where my work became my worth, a hundred percent. And I had to backpedal out of that once I recognized it and did exactly as you would have described early in this conversation of just where do I line up in this, you know, friend circle of quote unquote people who are running alongside me and I'm running alongside them, but still am I enough? And um, once the Lord really 
just got in the middle of that and brought brought freedom and uh, confession and all of that it it's still now as as being on the other side of that i can see how that how easy that can sneak up in my kids or that can sneak up in other mm-hmm. friends or right it doesn't mean like, like mm-hmm. i've I, I do believe i've slayed it in a way that i just remove myself and i really if i'm staying in the lane of creating and just kind of doing that with joy then it's less of a temptation across the board um, but if i kind of grow idle and i don't you know you know i'm just kind of like meandering and don't really have my own kind of passion or purpose of intention in that season, I can I can be drawn back to looking at what everyone else is doing and be influenced by that. So what would you recommend to someone who kind of um, wants to take notice and how to take notice? And then also once they do, how to stay in that lane of purpose and intention versus reaction and insecurity? I think it gets back to um, just humility. You know, I I found that, first of all, let me say this, insecurity is part of the human condition. And I do believe that we all struggle with it to varying degrees. Um, and it really is back to the words that are spoken over us. Um, but I know there are people who had amazing childhoods, who had extremely involved parents, who were very loving, um, and they still struggle with insecurity because society can send messages to you that you're not good enough and you don't measure up and you need the new car and you need the new body and you need the new husband. And so you're constantly feeling like nothing I do is good enough. And so I think um, that we have to be really explicit about what is the foundation from which we're deriving our sense of identity. And is it something that is subject to other people's approval? Is it something that is subject to other people's assessment of its worth? For example, academic credentials. Uh, There are many people who are getting all types of degrees and more advanced degrees because they assume that on the other side of that degree, they will finally have worthiness because they'll have people's respect. Well, that's an insecure foundation because it's reliant on other people's determination of its worthiness. So I think as adults, we have to ask ourselves, where am I deriving my sense of worth, my sense of value? For me, I'm deriving my sense of worth, my sense of value from my understanding of who I am in God. Um, One of the examples I give in the book, there's an artist, his name is Edgar Degas. He made such a powerful point. He said, when you don't know how to paint, uh, it's very uh, easy. But when you do know how to paint, it's very difficult. And I was like, what? But what he was saying is that when you're an amateur, when you're just somebody who flings paint onto a canvas, you can have a level of irreverence about your product. You can take pride in something that's shoddy because you don't know the difference. But when you're actually a master artist, you don't stop your creation formation until it's perfect in your eyes. And so for me, when I think about God, when I think about the fact that God created me, what I realize is perfection is not in the eye of the beholder. Perfection is not in the eye of the men and the women who are looking at me. Perfection is in the eye of the creator and the one who created me. So that's where I take my sense of value from. And I think if we can get to that place where we have an anchored identity, I think we will find that we're not as triggered when it comes to comparison. Oh, it's so good. I love that you are wrapping this with humility, um, that intention towards that, because uh, 
Chip talks about in this week's episode of Healthy Shame is that while the impairment of, and again, when we're talking about there's toxic shame and there's healthy shame, and healthy shame would be just his way of describing conviction, understanding like there, I did something that I want to make right. And it's not, it's not belittling our identity, but it is acknowledging that we, we don't just overlook things that we do against somebody and we we make that right. And the gift of this is that it leads us towards humility. And so even if you feel a healthy sense of shame because you know, hey, I just didn't handle that the way I wanted to or I don't want to stalk people online. Right, right. <laughs> I right. don't want to think little of somebody or be mad at the event director for not inviting me or feel right. just some source of resentment or whatever. It's the Holy Spirit that brings that to to the surface and illuminates that so that we can go, yes, Lord, I'm sorry for kind of going that route because I know that my worth isn't attached to that and that you open and close doors as you will and you send me where you want me to go. <laughs> and so choosing to place that trust back on Him that there's reasons that we are or are not invited to, things that aren't personal, it's just God's provision and where He what He has for us. And with that, we can walk humbly and go, okay, God, I just trust you that you put me in the places that you have for me. And um, we can take take heart with that. Well, thank you so much for today and what you shared and for your work and your writing. And I know even as the creator of, of a book, <laughs> as one who's written several, <laughs> they don't get easier. The more you know, you really do see it as a craft and you see it as a way of... Um, perfecting and I don't mean to be a perfectionist but to to care to care about the art to care that the words are clear to care that it that it flows it makes sense this is me coming off lots of edits on a book so but I love and appreciate the artist um, care and intention towards something and so thanks for sharing um, your work and your art with us today and inviting us into those deeper places of conversation and vulnerability around what God wants to do and heal and recover for us. So thank you, Nona, for being on with us today. Oh, this has been my pleasure. Thank you for having me and uh, also for creating a space to have this conversation. I think it's so important. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, we got to do a lot today. I mean, shame... And then this practical side of comparison, identity, ultimately. I I loved how Nona just described that it's not social media that necessarily is creating these feelings in you. It's it's probably surfacing something that's much deeper because two different people do respond to these things differently. Some are inspired and some feel lots of shame. I love that. It, It exposes what's already there and reveals it so that we can then begin to work on it. So if you're enjoying this series, invite your friends to come along with us. You can also watch this on video by going to rebeccalyons.com slash emotional health, and you can get the guide. You can actually watch each of these segments with Chip Dodd. So it can become almost, I mean, even a small group. You could sit and watch these together and create great conversations with couples, with friends, as we all continue to move down this journey towards emotional health. We've got a few episodes left. We're going to be addressing next week the feeling of guilt with Lisa Turkhurst. We're going to move into that final feeling of gladness. We can't wait to get there because that's one of those feelings that, man, we want to be feeling gladness all the time. But we're so thankful for you. Continue to give us your comments. Email us at info at Leave your reviews. 
We love hearing from you. We love seeing how much all of you are starting to get more and more emotionally healthy. Next week, we have our emotional health retreat, so be praying for that. And if you do decide that you are wanting to join, we only have a handful of tickets left. So let us know at RebeccaLyons.com slash EH retreat. 